It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In a way, the US dollar is a Spanish invention. The peso was the basic unit of currency in colonial America and was often abbreviated to PS. The story goes that over time, the two letters were written over each other and then the bowl of the P was lost to leave an S with a vertical line through the centre, a symbol now universally recognised as the dollar sign. Despite the challenge of China and the strains of deindustrialization, that dollar sign still represents the largest economy in the world. Compared with the rest of the rich world, America's economy looks really strong right now. But that's not the way many Americans feel about it, and there are few more powerful forces in politics than economic sentiment. With 32 days to go until the midterm elections, I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how does politics shape how Americans view the economy? The economy is the most important issue for Americans, according to a poll conducted by YouGov for The Economist. When asked to pick from a list of a dozen or more problems facing the nation, over a third of people say that the state of the economy, or inflation, is their top concern. Most of this group plan to vote for Republicans at the midterm elections in November. Is there a gap between how the economy is actually doing and people's perceptions? And how much does political tribalism shape which party voters trust to manage the public purse? With me to make sense of what's going on in America's economy at the moment and to think about how that might affect the midterms are Charlotte Howard and Idris Kaloun. Charlotte, you're sitting opposite me. We're in London together. How are you finding the sweet-smelling sidewalks of our capital city? It's great to be in London, though. I do miss Idris. Last week, you know, as we all know, Idris is a serious and intelligent man who does serious and intelligent things. So naturally, we took him to a sing-along piano bar. And never has my own joy been so perfectly correlated with someone else's misery. So the three of us and Alice Fullwood of Money Talks fame went out for a night together in Manhattan. We had a great time and Idris tolerated the piano bar. You know, I'm, I'm a utilitarian, so my own <laughs> disutility was compensated for by the immense joy that the three of you seemingly got from <laughs> singing, all shouting out of tune in a dank and windowless, decrepit, wooden out of tune, I beg your pardon. Maybe not you, but the collective was a bit out of tune. That's very nicely done. There's absolutely no way to link this discussion to what we're talking about in today's podcast. I mean, I could try a link about animal spirit. So I suggest we <laughs> no, just... No, it's not. It's that people are spending on the service economy. They have not yet retreated into economic despair, and they continue to support service workers, which have seen a stronger rebound in employment. Okay, Charlotte, thank you for that. Before we get into the politics of the economy and the midterms, you spoke to our colleague Simon Rabinovich to talk about what's actually going on in the US economy right now. 
Indeed, I did. So there's been a lot of talk about the economic outlook, and that's for good reason. The market has been down. There's concern that the Federal Reserve's efforts to rein in inflation will lead to a longer downturn. And so I wanted to ask Simon Rabinovich, who's the economics editor based in Washington, to ask him whether these fears are overblown. Well, I don't think it is overblown in the sense that we're in an incredibly uncertain environment. I mean, obviously, every economic cycle is different, but this one is is particularly different, you know, given the um, the pandemic uh, and then the extremely strong recovery from it. Um, you know, to the point that it's it's really the strongest labor market recovery that America has enjoyed in decades coming out of a, a recession. Um, and, and now in this really unfamiliar territory of extremely high inflation, uh, but still an incredibly tight job market, you know, roughly two jobs available for every unemployed person in America, it does beg the question of, you know, given this unfamiliar terrain, is it possible that the Fed can somehow engineer a tightening that brings inflation down, but that doesn't actually spill over to, to a big spike in the unemployment rate? Or is it inevitable that there will be that kind of collateral damage? So what are the key indicators then that you look for on a weekly or monthly basis that helps you decipher how likely that downturn is? Well, if there is going to be uh, a downturn, and I should say it's quite clear that growth is going to slow, I guess the question is, will that take growth into negative territory? And if it goes into negative territory, how deeply and for how long? And the key thing that's leading to that uh, is not anything kind of out there in the ether, but it's a direct response to Federal Reserve policy. Um, So the extent to which they've had to raise interest rates incredibly quickly, uh, you know, at the beginning of this year, the floor of the federal funds rate, the short-term interest rate in America was 0%. That's now 3%. The expectation is that it'll be about 4.5% early next year. That's an incredibly steep tightening by recent standards. You have to go back to the early 1980s for the last time that the Fed did anything like that. Um, That has all kinds of knock-on consequences for for the economy, for everything that's interest rate sensitive. We've seen mortgage rates go up dramatically, you know, from less than 3% a year ago to nearly 7% today. So the key thing then to look at is then How much more is the Fed going to have to tighten? And the answer to that relies in large part on how high is inflation? Is there a way that the labor market can somehow be better balanced, allowing inflation to come down without the Fed having to do an over-tightening? So one of the things that's interesting as we talk about America's economy is that when you're American and you're within the country's borders, you can focus endlessly on the Fed's activities or on unemployment reports, the differences between one state and the next. But when you look internationally, America's actually doing pretty well. So explain why that is. Right. So, I mean, it depends on on which country you're comparing America to. I guess the most natural comparison uh, is Western Europe, because obviously the, the economies you know, looked relatively similar in terms of structure. America had a somewhat milder downturn at the very beginning of the pandemic, and then a very strong recovery because fiscal policy, because fiscal stimulus was so strong in America. Of course, the downside to that has been high inflation. Now, high inflation is a global phenomenon. Europe obviously is very concerned now about high energy prices in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But at the very beginning of inflation, the real kind of starting point was not just supply chain snarls, 
but was really this incredibly aggressive stimulus in America. So America got off to a roaring start. It then faced up to kind of the core inflation problems earlier than many other countries. And so the result of that, you know, of the Fed beginning its tightening earlier than other central banks, is that America's slowdown actually appears to be a bit sharper than what Europe is experiencing, a bit sharper um, than what many, many countries in the Asia-Pacific region are experiencing. But the, the general view is that that will actually put America in slightly better shape for next year. Uh, it'll be able to wrestle inflation down more quickly than other countries. And because it's not dealing with the kind of energy price spikes that are, you know, really rattling Europe right now, it's not going to have as deep a recession either. In the management of America's economy, voters often ascribe a lot of responsibility to the president or to Congress. To what extent does Joe Biden or the Democrat-controlled Congress have much influence over the economy's trajectory now? I think there's no question that fiscal policies generally share some part of the blame. So, you know, different economists have tried to break down contributions to inflation in America. And if you take that kind of the run rate of inflation on an annual basis is about 8% right now, the general conclusion is that about three percentage points, so nearly half of that, can be attributed to fiscal policy. Uh, to be clear, that fiscal policy is not entirely of Joe Biden's making. I mean, Donald Trump had run quite aggressive stimulus early on in the pandemic as well. Joe Biden's American Rescue Plan implemented passed in March 2021 was clearly too much at a point when the economy was already beginning to recover. I guess the second part of the question is, can he contribute to a positive solution? Effectively, America's gone from having a budget deficit of about 15% of GDP last year to more like 5% of GDP this year. So incrementally, that actually represents quite a substantial fiscal drag. It's one of the reasons why growth has slowed as much as it has. Um, so for all of the people who are blaming the White House for the current run-up in inflation, in fact, the direction of fiscal policy at, at this point in time uh, is helping to bring inflation down. So Idris, there's how the economy is doing. And for my part, I think the American economy is a lot stronger than I expected it to be earlier in the year. And that's changed my view of the likely outcome of who's going to hold onto the Senate this fall. But then there's a separate thing, which is how people perceive the American economy. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that gap and how Americans are feeling about what's going on? Yeah, Americans are very pessimistic about the economy. I think part of that is that they, they don't realize quite how much better the U.S. economy is doing compared to some of the European ones because America is an island unto itself. But if you look at polling done this week with YouGov, we see that 62% of Americans say that the country is going off in the wrong direction. A lot of that is based on their perceptions of the economy. 58% of Americans say that they think that we are presently in a recession. And the partisan divide is very interesting there. 43% of Democrats say that we're in a recession right now, but 80% of Republicans say that, and independents are somewhere in between. People's definition of a recession is not at all what the technical definition is, which is two consecutive quarters of negative growth, or that's a conventional definition at least. Most people say that the best indicator for whether or not the economy is in a recession is the price of goods and services, which you know is not uh, not technically true. But you know the feelings that most people have, and that includes a lot of Democrats, is that the economy is not doing so well, and that will exert 
drag on the midterm prospects, even though, like Simon said, a lot of this was triggered by, you know, the extraordinary expenditures that happened under Donald Trump. The person who is going to be left holding the bag is going to be Joe Biden because he's the president right now. One thing that fascinates me is the real divergence in indicators that then seems to be having a knock-on effect on public opinion. So there are some numbers that are just are really gloomy. So the S&P, the market's down about 20% since the start of the year. So that is clearly something that people pay attention to with good reason. Inflation continues to be robust, and there's, and there's a lot of interest in the uh, Federal Reserve continuing to raise rates, as Simon laid out. So those are two kind of real causes of concern. But then you look at other metrics like corporate profits, which have continued to grow as a share of GDP, and there's tons of debate about when they're at last going to fall. But in the second quarter, they were 12% of GDP, which is the highest since at least the 1940s. You have, in August, a new the sales of new homes jumped. You have about two jobs that are open for every person who is unemployed. So, you know, there's some ways in which the sentiment just doesn't quite uh, reflect the reality. And people and companies both have been sitting on lots of extra cash. And so that's part of the reason why consumers have kept spending even as inflation has continued to rise. So they, they're they willing to cough up for the pricier goods. This is not all consumers, of course, but some. And it also means that businesses have continued to raise prices to offset their own climbing input costs. Um, profitable businesses don't lay off tons of workers. They hire them. So again, there's this kind of, there's sort of a bunch of different things going on. And it's fascinating to see how the public responds to them because it creates a real political problem for Biden, right? Because you have to both acknowledge inflation and acknowledge these rising prices while also trying to point out that things aren't quite as bad as they could be. I'm surprised that those job openings numbers and the wages numbers don't have more of an impact on how people perceive the economy because you would have thought they would, right? And and also, I suppose as a public policy matter, it's just interesting to me as somebody who's covered America for a while and spent a lot of time in the debates about why America's economy apparently couldn't create well-paid work at the lower end of the labor market. And we've written a lot about wage stagnation there. At a time when wages are you know, increasing incredibly fast at the lower end of the labor market, that doesn't seem to bring much by the way of political benefit, Idris. Yeah, I think there is something uniquely biting about inflation. Americans are incredibly sensitive to it in a way that, you know, even a lot of economists think is a bit overblown. You know, their sensitivity to it is actually less than than you might think. We don't know what will happen for 2022 because the year is not out yet and the economy is slowing now, even as inflation is still very high. But in 2021, the estimates from the Penn Wharton budget model were that increases in wage earnings compensated and offset the higher cost of living due to inflation for most households. And for higher income households, their earnings grew by more than the cost of inflation. So on net, they were better. Whereas for the lowest income households, those basically living in poverty, their earnings only rose by about a third as much as the total cost of living increase. So on average, I think, you know, wage growth was more than enough to to compensate for it. But the effect was was differential. Yeah. And I think that underscores the point that America is not in a boom, but it's certainly not in a bust. And it's also the case that this boom is very unevenly spread, right? There are some states that are doing really well, and there are some that are not doing quite so well. And we'll go back to a time when one state bucked the national economic trend in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, with the midterms just a month away, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. Charlotte Idris, what are your favourite things that you've read in The Economist in the past week or so? 
Well, we have a special report this week from our colleague Henry Kerr on the global economy that is really worth a read if you want to understand not just this phenomenon in America, but in other countries as well. I binge listened to The Prince over the weekend, which I thought was excellent. A lot of my friends did as well, sort of, you know, independently texted me to say how great they thought the podcast had been. So I think it's been a real hit. And with apologies to our own podcast, there aren't quite as many that I listen to where I feel like I learn quite as much as I did with The Prince. So highly recommend that. I will say that, Idris, your intonation is always understated, but I want to assure listeners that the way that level of compliment from Idris is the equivalent of him standing up and jumping down on his chair and screaming. So a a very excited endorsement from Idris. Thanks for being my enthusiasm interpreter. Uh, (laughs) Anytime. It is a great podcast. It is also currently number two in the Apple charts for news podcasts in America and in the top 10 of all podcasts overall. So not that those sorts of numbers matter, but it seems like a lot of people are listening to it. And I credit that entirely to our promotion of it on Checks and Balance. So so thank you, listeners, for, for listening to The Prince. And please continue to send it to all your friends. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe to The Economist. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. Two miles under the vast grasslands of North Dakota lie some 360 million-year-old rocks. The Bakken Formation was discovered in 1951 and named after the farmer on whose lands the first exploratory digging was done. There was oil nestled in layers of shale. But there was a problem was mainly in the central sandstone layer, stuck between the non-porous shale. The technology of the 1950s couldn't reach it. For nearly 60 years, the Bakken Formation lay still, an untapped treasure trove of black gold. I know that for many Americans watching right now, the state of our economy is a concern that rises above all others. In 2009, America was still reeling from the financial crisis. Unemployment was high, and the national economy was anemic. The U.S. was stuck in its longest recession since World War II. As soon as I took office, I asked this Congress to send me a recovery plan by President's Day that would put people back to work and put money in their pockets. One of President Obama's first acts in office was to launch the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And tonight, I am grateful that this Congress delivered and pleased to say that the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act is now law. The ARRA was a huge stimulus package, which would end up costing $840 billion. It was meant to save and create jobs and kickstart the spluttering economy. But one state was doing just fine already. At the heart of one of the largest oil booms in U.S. history, the city of Williston in North Dakota. This was once a quiet farming community, but is fast becoming the Houston of the Midwest. A new way to drill for oil had reached North Dakota. Rather than dig straight down, engineers went in sideways, cracked the rocks, and extracted oil that way. Fracking meant that those estimated 3.65 billion barrels of oil in the Bakken Formation could finally be tapped. 
And it meant that North Dakota, a tiny state with a population a quarter the size of Brooklyn, was experiencing growth not seen in years. Farmers became millionaires as oil companies drilled on their lands. In tiny towns, people queued outside county offices at dawn, hoping to gain title to mineral rights so they too could get in on the boom. With the labour market struggling elsewhere, workers looking for a job flocked to the state. They were mainly men, but there wasn't enough housing. So-called man camps were set up, rows of temporary housing that could accommodate thousands with strict rules about alcohol and visitors. I had a wife and four kids. Pretty much watched my two-year-old grow up in pictures. But somebody's got to pay the bills. The hours and the pay the way it is here, I make probably three times what I was making in Little Rock. So that way it's very good. And then I don't have to pay for anything while I'm here. So that really helps out a lot. North Dakota soon became the second highest oil producing state behind Texas. In the 11 years to 2013, the state's economic output doubled to $50 billion. Only Alaska had a higher GDP per capita. During the Great Recession, as the rest of the economy struggled, the Peace Garden state thrived. Other states were desperate for funding from the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. North Dakota wasn't, but it still got plenty of cash, around $520 million. There are 50 economies in the United States. Federal stimulus programs would be more effective if they were a little more bespoke. Charlotte, you and I have now reached the advanced age where things that we reported on for The Economist can now be featured in the history segment of Checks and Balance. What do you remember from your reporting in North Dakota at that time? Yeah, it was really wild, actually, in northwest North Dakota. So you drive around and it was just mobbed with people. It was very hard to find a hotel room. I had multiple uh, farmers suggest that I marry their sons, who had recently become millionaires, which I... Did you say yes to any of them? I declined, which may or may not have been a mistake. But it was very, very, it was a very, very busy, uh, busy period in North Dakota. But what's interesting now, of course, is that Texas, which is a state that also has seen its oil industry revolutionized by shale, has experienced a big boom as Europe tries to source natural gas from suppliers other than Russia, because Russia has has severely restricted supply to the West. So that energy boom from fracking is one of the reasons why America has been more insulated than Europe, for instance, why America's economy has been more insulated, because a lot of the natural gas is going to Europe, but a lot of it, they simply don't have the capacity to export because they don't have enough facilities along the Gulf Coast. So the result is that the natural gas is staying within America's borders and helping to keep the cost of energy down. Yeah, Idris, if you're living in an energy-producing state in America, of which there are many, you've got this double boom, right? You had all the federal spending, the stimulus money after COVID. And then on top of that, you've got high energy prices. Yeah. So when we said that Americans were especially sensitive to inflation, I think probably the one number they're sensitive to above all others are gas prices. And, you know, at least in, in America, those have dropped from some of their highs that we've seen over time, I think that if you look at the comparative situation and, and the sort of capacity for America to produce as much energy as it has is one of the things that is limited, I think, the the real sort of bite that we've seen in, in other countries. So even though energy prices for homes and these sorts of things are relatively stable here um, in the UK, they've increased for some families by three four times, you know, some stories of energy bills that are just enormous. You know, the fact that 
that America can produce, you know, as much energy as it can. And it's sort of natural fossil fuel reserves that it's now being tapped into are part of the reason why the situation is much better here than elsewhere. So Charlotte, states got this windfall of cash as part of the COVID stimulus. At the time, the predictions were from most people that state revenues would be really, really stretched and states would be unable to provide services for their citizens without an injection of cash from the federal government. Actually, that turned out to be be wrong. Their income from tax revenue didn't fall as much as expected. And so they've just got this huge extra slug of cash. What have they been doing with it? Well, it varies by state. The general theme is that they're trying to give tax relief in some way. But there are a few things going on. First of all, I'd point out that a lot of the stimulus money still hasn't been spent. So there's a long time between when the law is signed and when the cash actually goes out. But you have states that have issued tax rebates. Republican states are cutting taxes. Democratic states are making tax credits for poor families more generous. It's not that surprising that governors and legislatures would try to do this because it's clearly politically popular. I was struck in California, which was in the unusual situation of having a big budget surplus, that there was polling of people and how they wanted to spend the stimulus cash, which included some people saying they wanted to spend it on education or infrastructure or tax rebates. And way down the list was talk about reducing state debt. So it's not, a lot of this money has not been sort of put aside to set states on stronger fiscal footing necessarily. It's more about uh, short-term benefits. And so I'm curious if there is a slowdown, how states will respond. I don't think these good times are going to last forever. I agree with you. California's budget, which was already not a trivial amount of money, has increased over the last few years from something like $200 billion a year to $300 billion a year. And while that's all well and good now, when a recession does happen, if it, even if it doesn't happen now, it'll happen eventually. You know, there has to be some method devised to to roll back uh, expenditures. And I, you see that also. I mean, red states actually have been much more comfortable shelling out money than I think they would have been in the past. I mean, a lot of Republican governors, I'm in uh, Georgia right now, where, you know, one of the things that Brian Kemp is campaigning on is the increased um, money that he's spent on teacher salaries and you know, when I spoke with the governor of Oklahoma, that was something that he mentioned as well a few weeks ago. Uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida has also spent a lot of that money on things that traditionally Democrats would have spent money on. So I think that, you know, the, the flush circumstances are leading to some, some very unusual uh, spending habits. Yeah, I feel like criticizing the federal government for being profligate with money while also taking that money and spending it on salaries in your home state and reaping a political windfall from that is a sort of venerable American tradition when it comes to governors. Yeah. There's one other thing that I wanted to point out because I hadn't actually properly understood it until I read an article by one of our colleagues in The Economist, which is that when people got their individual checks, they spent more, which raised state sales tax revenue. And when prices went up, actually, for goods, so did revenue from sales taxes and also, as people's salaries have risen as a result of inflationary pressures, they then climbed into higher tax brackets. So all this stuff makes sense intuitively. I just hadn't actually understood it until I read a story in the paper. And so that those phenomena combined with the state-level stimulus is another reason why states are in this really comfortable position. The political commentary around the economy emphasizes how people's political preferences are influenced by what's going on in the economy, but the same works in the other direction. And we'll be back in a moment to consider how people's political preferences actually influence how they view the economy. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Elliot Morris is our resident data guru, and this week he's been looking at what issues matter most to voters. The economy is at the top, as it usually is. So I wanted to know that if this is the case, and if voters tend to trust Republicans more with the economy, why doesn't the Republican Party just win every election? Whereas voters do factor the economy into their vote, there is a declining number of people, our polls show, who are susceptible to persuasion based on the economy. Uh, In America today, there's a large number of partisans who increasingly view the economy through the lens of, is my party the president? Uh, And if so, then my outlook on the economy is good. So we're in a bit of a changing electoral uh, era in which we don't really know if the economy is going to be predictive of elections in the future. So that's really interesting. Just to underline that, if you're a Democrat and Joe Biden is in the White House, broadly, you think the economy is doing great. If you're a Republican and Joe Biden's in the White House, you think the economy is going to hell. Yeah. And of course, we're talking laws of averages here. We're not, you know, this is not true for every single Democrat or every single Republican, but this has an increasing sway on voters' uh, perceptions of economic reality. And Elliot, when we talk about the economy, there are all sorts of things that we're thinking about or that voters might be thinking about when a pollster calls them up and says, tell us your views on the economy. I mean, you could be thinking about inflation, which is really high at the moment, and I'd imagine therefore bad for the party holding the White House. You could be thinking about unemployment, which looks pretty good at the moment, which ought to be good for whoever's in the White House. You could be thinking about other things as well. I mean, what do voters think? when they're asked about the economy. I'd imagine that when inflation is particularly high, then that's very salient and it's bad news for for the incumbent in the White House. Am I far off there? Yeah, I can think of two ways to answer this question. And the first is to look at the historical correlation between various economic indicators and presidential or congressional election outcomes. And if you do that, then historically the best predictor of elections is annual change in the unemployment rate. Now, there are other factors that matter, too. As you say, inflation has factored into decisions in the past, um, as has, you know, annual jobless claims, which are correlated to unemployment, but not the same, or maybe housing starts. And while we look at all these indicators when we're making presidential election forecasts, they aren't highly predictive of congressional election outcomes. So we know that voters aren't always thinking about these things the way that economists or election forecasters might think of them. The other wrinkle in the story is, of course, that we haven't had high inflation, at least to the degree we have it today in America in 40 years or so. So we've missed 40 years of the dependent variable. In other words, we haven't been able to assess the impacts of high inflation for two generations. So when we look, for example, at change in gas prices from week to week, those have been predictive of Joe Biden's approval rating, whereas they weren't predictive of uh, Donald Trump's or, to a lesser degree, Uh, Barack Obama's. So when I say this is a changing electoral era, what I really mean is it could go either way. uh, And it depends even further to complicate the story on what indicators you are looking at. 
I know a related thing you've been thinking about this week and writing about for The Economist is issue polling and the issues on which Republicans and Democrats score particularly well or particularly badly. There's that great Larry Bartels and Christopher Aiken book, Democracy for Realists, where they talk about a folk theory of democracy, whereby voters think, oh, well, the thing I care about most is X. The party with the best policy on X is this party, and therefore I'm voting for that party. But almost nobody votes like that. I'm sure some economist listeners do, being sober types with a high appetite for public policy, but really most people don't. And so, you know, given that, what is the importance of issue-based polling? And what, what can it actually tell us that's useful, do you think? Well, one thing that issue polls let us do is track changes in the electorate over time. So on this question of the economy, for example, we're able to see, you know, our, our material or perceived material conditions for the average voter or the average American changing over time. I mean, it, on this metric, right, on whether or not people think the economy is getting better or worse, you have a lot of change that seems well correlated with overall state of the economy, again, however you want to define that. Um, and this metric, for what it's worth, is very bad today. 60% of people in our polling, nearly 60%, say the economy is getting worse. And that's you know one of the worst ratings of Joe Biden's presidency. Similarly, you have big backlashes during previous recessions. So you know they are helpful in measuring changes in levels of satisfaction or in, you know, harm to the average voter, at least on you know, this, these sorts of economic questions. Elliot, I was looking at a 10-year run of Gallup polling data recently on which party Americans trust most on the economy. And apart from a very brief moment in 2020, the beginning of 2020, around the time COVID-19 hit, Republicans basically are ahead on the economy for that entire period. So what explains the Republican Party's persistent lead on the economy, do you think? Well, in the historical lens, Democrats are sort of pro-spending, pro-deficit parties for the good of the social welfare of Americans, again, sort of broadly speaking. And of course, Republicans favor some social programs too, so try not to overgeneralize. If you ask yourself as a rational American voter, what does that mean for the economy, um, then you know, I guess it makes some sense to think, well, these big spending administrations are bad for the economy. They su suppress growth and cause inflation. Now, whether or not that is actually the case in reality, well, it actually looks like that might not be the case in reality. Um, but that's a pretty solid narrative to sell to the American people. I mean, that's the one for what it's worth that I heard growing up in my very Republican town in South Texas. So thinking about voter behavior in terms of sort of what media people are consuming, what they're hearing from their social networks, maybe that makes more sense. Closer here to the election today, last week we wrote about Latinos, who we, we see as the new swing voters. Um, and some of my interviews with Latino pollsters uncovered that this group doesn't necessarily think that the Democratic Party stands for hard work, or at least they think the Republican Party stands for, quote, hard work more than the Democrats do. Now, again, whether or not that is a rational assumption is, I guess, neither here nor there, but it does seem to be a pervasive downstream belief that would therefore cause Americans to give Republicans an advantage on the more general issue of the economy. Do 
Drees, as discussed before, it's pretty likely that Republicans will win a majority in the House, and it's quite possible that they'll win a majority in the Senate as well. What is the Republican Party economic agenda to deal with some of the problems of the American economy in 2022? Well, in the Commitment to America that was released last week, which we talked about, the basic economic promise was conventional supply-sideism, deregulation, tax cuts, boosting growth, which is actually not what you want to do when you're dealing with inflation. I mean, Liz Truss just tried to do that. It didn't go that well for her. I think that the Republican Party is not really, you know, people are not going to vote for Republicans on the economy based on necessarily the strength of their specific policy agenda, but because what the Republican Party stands for now is opposition to Joe Biden and his management of the economy. Basically, Republicans say he caused inflation, we won't cause inflation. Now, the exact way that they'll do that is a bit unclear. If the budget were to balance and and spending were to decrease, that would obviously have an effect, which would be to reduce inflation. But, you know, it's, it's tough and it's tough for Biden as well to lay out a policy agenda that will reduce inflation, given that, you know, a lot of this is, you know, across the world, it's not uniquely American. And the main job of fighting inflation is obviously for the Fed to do. The Fed is going to do what it's going to do. And on the margins, you know, some Democrats have been campaigning, I've seen in this cycle on, you know, oh, we passed a bill that'll reduce the cost of insulin, it'll reduce uh, prescription drugs prices. And those are all good things, but it will have a vanishingly little effect on, on the inflation rate overall. And indeed, the amount that was saved by the, quote, Inflation Reduction Act was more than exceeded by Biden's student loan forgiveness. So I think that there's been a bit of a muddle on the Democratic side on what to do about it. But I don't think the Republican answers are particularly satisfactory. But also, I don't think it'll matter that much for voters who are just doing a more straightforward up or down vote than, uh, you know, the uh, very serious economist reader who goes through white papers and makes their decision that way. So I'm with you, Idris, on Republicans. In terms of Biden's own messaging, I have some sympathy for the task, which is that um, he has to try to both acknowledge that inflation is an issue, argue that it's not quite so bad. He wants to point to investments in America's long-term economic health because those have really been the legislative achievements of his presidency to date, which are not insignificant. But that would be hard even for someone who is a really skilled political communicator, which I don't think I would put President Biden in that category. And he was on 60 Minutes not too long ago. And he kind of dismissed a rise in the consumer price index in August as saying it rose just an inch, hardly at all, which whether or not it's true, he has to sound sympathetic, right, to the problem of inflation, which is undeniable. And so both it's objectively a hard political task for the Democrats and President Biden as a man is uniquely unsuited to deliver it. It's not surprising to me that Republicans are trying to make this huge issue. I have a nerdy question to both of you, which I want to end with. If we get the unlikely outcome, which I'm not expecting, but which is possible, right? And it's always good to consider the lower probability outcome that Democrats were to hold on to the House and to continue to have a majority in the Senate. So they would remain with a trifecta. What would the Biden economic agenda be going forward? I mean, it seems to me that they internalized the lessons of Barack Obama's presidency so much, i.e. that losing your majorities in the first midterms is almost like a law of gravity, that they front-loaded everything, right? You have the the CHIPS Act, you've got all the infrastructure spending, various other things that were crammed into the first couple of years. It's not obvious to me that they have a lot of things that they'd want to do 
were they to keep power in Congress for the next two? Or, or, is, or do you think I'm missing some, some big agenda? I mean, if you go back to President Biden's campaign website, which I'm sure you perused, there was a lot of stuff on there. So, you know, immigration is, I I think of it as an economic package, right, for America's long-term economic health. There are all kinds of things that they could do more on in terms of, I mean, Idris knows much better than I do because he writes all the time about this, but long-term support for economic mobility within America I'm sure there's a lot of stuff you'd like to do on education. So I think of those as not just social issues, but economic ones. I think they'd be elated if they got to keep control of Congress. And I guess what they would do depends on two states of the world, one in which they get enough senators to eliminate the filibuster, in which case things like immigration reform and abortion protections become viable, and one in which the filibuster remains and they retreat to another agenda, which is still pretty significant. I mean, the thing that they really wanted to get through but couldn't um, in the last two years was a big expansion of the social safety net, things like the child tax credit, which we've talked about, but also um, expanded universal pre-K, child care subsidies, uh, elder care subsidies. All you know, It was a very big expansion that Biden had been mulling and really tried to push through, which failed ultimately because Joe Manchin wasn't on board, partially because of inflation concerns. If their margins in the Senate improve by one or two senators, suddenly he doesn't become the swing vote and some of that stuff becomes viable again. They didn't get the tax tax increases that they wanted as well. So I think that, you know, if they had the opportunity, that's where they would focus their energy. Okay, so as we said, that's unlikely to happen, but the effects would be pretty big if it did. Before I let both of you go, I have a quiz. And Charlotte, it's North Dakota themed. So I think Mm. you might have an edge here because Mm. you've spent more time in the state than Idris has or I have. Question one, North Dakota is home to the only national park bearing the name of a person. Who is that person? Theodore Roosevelt? Is the right answer. The Theodore Roosevelt National Park, its name. Teddy would often go to the Badlands to hunt, as was his wont, and he owned a ranch there too. So one point. That was very quick on the draw. Teddy would be happy. Exactly. Teddy would have been quick on the draw too. That's a good point. Question two. I can hardly bear the suspense. North Dakota is the largest producer of which condiment and ingredient? Hmm. Condiment might throw you off. You mean within America? I think it's sunflower seeds, some sun butter, some kind of sunflower-related item. Uh, maybe like peanut butter? Both fine guesses. The answer is honey. Huh. Ah. 2021 was the 18th consecutive year in which North Dakota's bees outproduced all other states. The combination of uncultivated land and a summer climate of warm days and cool nights makes North Dakota ideal bee territory. Hmm. So there. One of my favorite things about driving through North Dakota in the summertime is that you do have fields of sunflowers, and then nestled within them are these little barbed wire fences that contain beneath them um, nuclear missiles. It is funny that all of our nukes are uh, are in North Dakota and like random parts of America. But um, yeah, well, congrats to Charlotte, who's the queen bee woot, woot. this week. Yeah, it's a two nil victory. Um, this is one no, for the ages. No, one nil. I didn't get. One, I, got, oh, I guess not, sunflowers. Oh, sorry. It's a one nil. I mean, victory. you could count it as two. <laughs> I think it was double. Extra credit. Um, the first answer was so striking, I may be awarded two points for that. For one point for speed. I do say, I, I'm glad, though, Idris, that you're keeping us honest. The speed with which you tried to contest 
the faulty results suggest that you do actually care about the outcome of these quizzes. I just want the record to be honest and fair. Hmm. Idris's happy place is much more quiz time than it is piano bar. So Indeed. Well, Idris, we better let you get back to your reporting in Georgia. Have fun. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Yes, I'm sure you will hear lots about it very soon. And Charlotte, thank you for flying over just to record this podcast. Gosh, that would be a really bad management decision, but it is good to be here. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Sam Colbert. Our sound engineer is Timo Seiler. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. We also have a checks and balance newsletter, which you can sign up for at economist.com slash newsletters. And you can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.